Good morning. Today's Bible reading is um, Genesis chapter 18, verses 16 through to 28. Abraham pleads for Sodom. When the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. The men turned away and went towards Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? The Lord said, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Thank you, Margaret. Good morning, everyone. Lovely to see you all. Uh, yeah, it is. <laughs> it's <laughs> makes a nice change. <laughs> no, it's always lovely to see you all. I don't normally get up for the first time in my sermon, so I've normally done some salutary things. I think that's the right word. And uh, anyway, good morning, everyone. It's lovely to see you. And we're going to look at God's Word uh, this morning. And I encourage you to have it open. I don't have any overheads, so it would be wonderful if you had your Bible, open it up. Uh, we are covering quite a big amount of uh, text, so both uh, chapter 18 and chapter 19. Obviously, I'm not going to go through it verse by verse, uh, but there is plenty there for you to check that I'm telling you the right thing. So let's pray and we will have a look at these two chapters. Father God, thank you uh, that you are the sovereign ruler of the universe. Thank you that... There is nothing outside of your power, nothing outside of your presence and nothing outside of your providence. Father God, thank you that in all things you are the one who has, uh, who has redeemed uh, your creation back for yourself. And Father, as we look at these two chapters uh, of Genesis, as we are confronted by this devastation that's happening in Sodom and Gomorrah, Father, we pray that you will speak to our hearts uh, that you'll help us to understand what's happening here, but you'll challenge us that we need to be ready for the day that we will stand judgment. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, for those who have been keeping up with the news this week, you would have seen uh, that the final report from the Royal Commission uh, into the robo-debt scheme was handed down uh, by the Commissioner. 
Uh, for those who aren't aware, the robo-debt scheme was a tool used by the federal government uh, to determine whether those who had received welfare payments had been overpaid and they'd accumulated a debt. Uh, it was technology, it averaged a person's uh, income over a year and calculated any debt they owed and automatically issued letters uh, demanding uh, people pay that debt to recover that debt. Now, it was originally designed to call people to account. Uh, it was to bring the debt in and it seems fair, that's, that's, that's a reasonable thing for the government to do. But what the Royal Commission found uh, that it wasn't just an automated calculation of what was legal and what was currently done and how things actually should have operated. Uh, the problem was it effectively changed the way the debt was calculated. And people who had received payments within the bounds of the law had debts raised against them and were demanded to pay those debts, but they, they, they actually didn't it was outside of the law. They shouldn't have had a debt at all. Now, the Royal Commission revealed that despite some public servants insisting laws needed to be changed, politicians and bureaucrats ignored it and went on their merry way anyway to try to cover a budget black hole. Now, the report said robo-debt had disastrous effects including families struggling to make ends meet receiving a debt notice at Christmas, young people being driven to despair by demands for payment, and horribly, an account of a young man's suicide. There is an entire chapter in the report that is sealed because it recommends both criminal and civil action um, and prosecution of some of these people in power. Uh, what has become apparent is that there are people in power who think they will not be held accountable. They can operate outside of the law in corrupt and oppressive ways. Those who felt it okay to keep the powerless accountable somehow don't think that they are going to be held accountable. But here we are, a Royal, commissioner, a, a royal Commission, and that day has come and a time, there'll be a time when that chapter is opened and each of these people will have to stand before a judge and give an account for what they have done. Now, it must be quite a shock to have your working life put under the microscope of a Royal Commission. I'm guessing there are a number of people wondering whether they're in that sealed chapter. I think those people are more than likely not to have much sleep over the coming months. But my question is, how would you feel if a royal commission was announced into your work practices? How would you feel about being held accountable for everything you've done in your working life? See, chapters 18 and 19 reveal that there will be a royal commission but it won't just be your working life. It will be your entire life. And you will be held accountable for everything. Each of us one day will stand before the judge as the report of the Royal Commission is read out of your life. Your working life, your relationships, your treatment of others, how you've stewarded everything God has given you, 
what you do on your devices, what you do in public and what you do behind closed doors. It will be a thorough Royal Commission. No second of your life will be overlooked. So how are you preparing for that day? By what standard are you expecting the Commissioner, the Lord Almighty, to report your life against? And the question at the heart of these chapters is a question Abraham states to God as he pleads for mercy upon Sodom and Gomorrah. He says, will not the judge of all the earth do right? In other words, he's saying, will the just judge judge justly? Well, in the previous chapter, God gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision to mark his people and he revealed to Abraham that Ishmael was not going to be the line through which uh, he, he brought the blessings of land people and a blessing to the nations. He said Abraham and Sarah would bear Isaac. Now, the events of chapters 18 and 19 happened pretty soon after this. And the entire two chapters take place within a 24-hour period. In the earliest manuscripts in the Hebrew, it was one paragraph. And that's why we're going to look at it in one block today. Because it was designed to be one block, and it's a very important block, I think. Well, in the first 16 verses uh, of chapter 18, uh, we have three visitors arriving at Abraham's camp. And in line with the hospitality of the culture that was expected, he has Sarah make a meal for them. Now, there's a lot of debate about who these three visitors are, and a lot of people like to say, well, it's the Trinity, it's the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I don't think that's the case. Uh, I think in the beginning of chapter 19, we're told there's two of them who are angels that arrived at Sodom, so two angels could also be messengers, but I think... Uh, from the previous chapters, we can go with angels. Now, the third one is the Lord. Uh, we're told when Abraham stays back and talks to the Lord with the third person. Uh, the third visitor uh, is obviously the Lord revealed himself in human form. We don't know anything beyond that. God reveals himself in many different ways at many different times. A fire in a burning bush, a pillar of cloud in the wilderness a whisper to Elijah. Uh, he also reveals himself in human form when he wrestles Jacob, in, and we'll look at that in a few weeks' time. But that's really all we know. Was it the form of Jesus? We don't know. Well, they ask where Sarah is. Abraham, well, she's in the tent. Bit of an unusual question for three people that you didn't know who they were. Uh, but it becomes obvious that they are uh, beyond just three strangers coming in. Um, they ask where she is and then they give, reinforce the promise that they, Abraham and Sarah, would have a child again. Uh, verse 10 says this. Then one of them said, I will surely return to you about this time next year and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. So it appears... Uh, Abraham hadn't ha actually told Sarah about his, uh, his encounter with God in the previous uh, chapter. With the uh, covenant of circumcision, I'm pretty sure she knew everyone was circumcised. Uh, that would have been obvious. But uh, God did 
reinforce that Ishmael wasn't going to be the line and they would still have a son. But Sarah is extremely uh, surprised. So I don't think Abraham's even bothered to tell her. I think he's probably worried about her response. Uh, I think she's probably bitter. 23 years since the original promise, she's still thinking that Ishmael is the line. But she overhears this conversation and she laughs at the irony of the whole situation. Now, remember the word Isaac, the name Isaac uh, means to laugh. Uh, Maybe uh, I think she's just got bitterness and she's just going, what, so I'm old now and now you're going to give me a child. She's not exactly in a great frame of mind. She's She's had a pretty tough 23 years, I think. Then we have the end of that section, basically, why did you laugh? I didn't laugh. You did too. And that sort of ends it. <laughs> so it's a fascinating little uh, encounter between Sarah and, uh, and one of the men. So, so that's kind of the, the, the introduction of the three visitors uh, into this story. Uh, the focus then really shifts upon Sodom. And this is why I had this part... Uh, read because I think this is central to these two uh, chapters. The three men look towards the city, we're told, of Sodom, and the Lord, the Lord has a dialogue within himself concerning Abraham. Uh, it shifts from uh, Abraham being uh, going to be blessed we, as a nation to being a blessing to all the nations. If you have a look at uh, chapter 18, verse 18, uh, we're told... Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. But the purpose of this visit of the three strangers is revealed in verse 21 and it's about Sodom and Gomorrah. That's where we're heading. Then the Lord said the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sins so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. So this is why the Lord has come. He's heard outcries about Sodom and Gomorrah and he's come to earth to see if those outcries are true because he is the just judge. And then we have this remarkable dialogue between Abraham and the Lord. See, Abraham is pleading for the Lord to do what is right. Let me read you again, verses 23 to 25. Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? And then we have this dialogue that goes from 50 and we end up all the way down to 10. And the Lord says, well, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. See, Abraham here is questioning whether God's justice is just. He recognises that God is a just God, but he's perplexed that God may destroy the entire city when there could be a righteous person there. 
Abraham is effectively telling God how he should be God. Now, I think the problem that Abraham has here is pretty much the problem that most people have in accepting that there is any God at all, let alone a God who's going to judge. So it's a misunderstanding of the extent of sin, which leads to a misunderstanding of God's character in relationship to sin. People often say, well, if there is a God, why is there so much suffering in the world? Why? Why doesn't he do something about it? See, but they want him to do something about it as long as they're not brought into accountability. In fact, it's a problem of recognising that one a person has an issue. And so we start creating a standard by which God should judge. And we look at the world and we go, well, that is bad, that is good. I'm always in that section, so why isn't God doing something about all this stuff that's going on in the earth? We tell God he should do something, but we won't sit under his judgment or his standing. It's a case of thinking any royal commission will hold us to a standard that we create. But the truth is, the standard of God is his holiness, his, perfect, his perfection and his righteousness that he defines. And so the way we view the world should shift from going, why doesn't he do something about it, to why hasn't he done something about it? Because if he hasn't done something about all of us, then that means that maybe he's delaying judgment for some reason. See, in Abraham, I think, is thinking the wrong way. He cannot fathom that everyone deserves judgment in Sodom and Gomorrah. And the question, will not the judge of the earth do right, assumes that everybody, uh, not everybody, deserves his judgment. I think the problem is inherently we think everyone is good. The dialogue ends with God saying, for the sake of ten righteous people, I won't destroy the city. And he can say that because he knows exactly how many righteous people are there. And then the remarkable events unfold in chapter 19 to reinforce this dialogue. Have a look at verse 1 of chapter 19. The two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. When he saw them, he got up to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. So, so the Lord stayed back with Abram. These two angels have headed down to the city to do the work of the Lord, to see where the judgment should be placed upon. Uh, and, uh, and here they are. At the gateway of the city is Lot. Now Lot's probably there at the end of a working day with a whole bunch of blokes sitting at the gate plaza in the cool of the evening. Notice his greeting is one of hospitality, just as Abraham's was. And in these chapters, it seems to be the test of righteousness to be hospitable to strangers. The men then refuse uh, his hospitality, 
uh, and then he insists, he insists they relent and they come in. Now, that could be a cultural thing. It was a very cultural way of uh, going, oh, no, no, I couldn't, and then they offer again and you go. But I think uh, Lot knows uh, more about the city uh, than, than we realise here, and he doesn't want them to spend the night in the square. But then things turn into a nightmare. The entire population of men, young and old, we are told, surround Lot's house, calling out for Lot to bring them out so they could rape them. It's as simple as that. Now, the language there could mean the whole city, men and women, but I think it is the men here. And I don't want to understate the depravity of this scene. This is horrific. Imagine being in a house that is surrounded by men beating down the door, trying to get hold of a couple of strangers you've brought in so that they could do the unthinkable to them. Now, while homosexuality was an accepted practice in some of these cultures, uh, violence and rape was not. So the depravity is lot to the point where he offers his two unmarried daughters to the men. Now, do with that what you want. I don't think Lot was doing that. I think he was, he was, he was fearful. They were all going to perish. The mob then threatened Lot, saying they will treat him worse than they are going to treat the men and try to break down the door. This is a scene of total depravity. There is nothing in this city that is good. Well, thankfully, these men, unknowingly to Lot, are actually angels. And so they are able to intervene. They pull Lot back inside and they strike those outside the door with blindness so they can't find the door and break it down. Now at this point, don't forget, we're trying to find ten righteous people. Now I think Abraham stopped at ten for a reason. I think he probably had ten relatives and he assumed that they were all good people. Now, even though it seems to talk about his two unmarried daughters or his two virgin daughters, uh, and then later on his two, uh, his two sons-in-law that were to be, uh, the language is actually the sons-in-law later on are more likely to be uh, real sons-in-law. So I think Lot had at least three more daughters who had married in, in, the, in the city. Uh, but where do we find his sons-in-law? Well, we find them outside with the rest of the mob. So if he had three more daughters, three sons-in-law, plus his two other daughters, Lot and his wife, that would be ten. So I, I really think that's why Abram stopped... Uh, at 10. But what we find is his sons-in-law are not, are not righteous. 
they are with the mob outside banging down this door. Who knows what life was at home for Lot's daughters. Well, it doesn't matter about the ten anymore because I think we're suddenly realising there isn't ten. Six of them are now outside. We've left with four in the house. We're left with Lot, his wife, and these two unmarried daughters. So the whole city is going to be destroyed. The angels tell them to flee to the mountain. Lot negotiates staying in Zoah. And in verses 23 to 25, we're told this, By the time Lot reached Zoah, the sun had risen over the land. Then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. Thus he overthrew those cities and the entire plain, destroying all those living in the cities and also the vegetation in the land. But Lot's wife looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Well, Lot's wife looked back. She was still holding on to the life back in Sodom and Gomorrah. We're down to three. We then learn in verses 30 to 38, Lot and his daughters leave Zoah and head to the mountains anyway, even after negotiating to go to Zoah. And what does his daughters do in the last nine verses of this, uh, this chapter? Well, they take matters into their own hands. We've heard that over and over and over and over again in Genesis. Oh, there's no men up here. We're not going to be able to get married. They get their father drunk, sleep with him and end up bearing children who become the Ammonites and the Moabites who become quite uh, opposed to Israel in much of the Old Testament. We're down to one lone person, Lot. Well, we know Lot's not a righteous man. The reason he's down in Sodom and Gomorrah was that he was offered by Abraham take the choice instead of deferring it back to his Uh, To his elder, he took the choice to go down near the city. He liked the enticement of the city. Well, I think by the end of this chapter, we should realise there was not one righteous person in Sodom and Gomorrah. See, at the heart of these chapters is the misconception we all have, including what Abraham had, of the state of the world. We think... We are inherently good. And based on our goodness and our righteousness, we will be saved. See, what these chapters are showing us is that the royal commission into everybody's life will be extensive, comprehensive, and the terms of reference will be every second of every minute of every day of your life. And those things done in public and those things done in secret will be held to a standard. And that standard isn't the standard that you set. It's the standard that the Lord has set. See, Abraham assumed there must be good people. He assumed his family must be worthy. And he was baffled that God would destroy a whole city when there was one person in it. He was confident that in negotiating the Lord down to ten righteous people, he could save some. Yet he found himself the next morning in chapter 19, verse 28. We're told, 
<clears throat> he looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah, toward all the land of the plain, and he saw dense smoke rising from the land like smoke from a furnace. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? Well, the answer is yes, he will. He will do right and everyone will be brought to account, not on your own standard, but on his standard. And there is coming a day when we will all have to give an account for our life. But against God's standard, nobody can stand. And the Bible makes that very clear. There is no one righteous, not even one, no one who understands, no one who seeks God. So what hope is there? when we have a passage like this. Well, the passage doesn't just show God's justice. It isn't just about God's, uh, the just God being judging justly. It's also about God's mercy. And that's, in fact, the heart of this passage. Verse 16 of chapter 19, after Lot hesitated, so he hesitated in going, We're told this in verse 16. When Lot hesitated, the men grasped his hand and the hands of his wife and of his two daughters and led them safely out of the city for the Lord was merciful to them. And this mercy is exercised because of the covenantal promises that the Lord has made with Abraham. It was the Lord that led Lot out. And in verse 29, we're told, so when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham and he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. You see, God saved Lot and his daughters, not because of their righteousness, but because of his mercy. And it's flowing out of the covenantal promises that were given in chapter 12 and in chapter 15 and reinforced last week in chapter 17. This is an outworking of how God's covenantal promises are going to work. He has committed and it will be through mercy as well as upholding divine judgment in which he will build his kingdom. And that is the way of salvation for all of us. See, as we stand before God on the day the royal commission into our lives is revealed, the just judge will judge justly. And the only hope we have is to appeal to his mercy. But is there any assurance in that? Well, there's absolute assurance because the path he has provided comes through the one who has met the standard of God. See, God hasn't just said, well, I'll make a decision. You've got to appeal and appeal and appeal and I'll make a random decision whether I, you're a lot or whether you're not a lot. No. He says uh, that I will send my only son He says, I will do the sacrificing so that I can exercise both my divine justice born by Jesus on the cross and my divine mercy 
See, for those of us who have put our faith in Jesus, his death on the cross has paid the punishment on your behalf. God mercifully sacrificed his one and only son so that when you believe in him, you will not perish as the just judgment you deserve, but you will mercifully receive eternal life. And this is the hope of the promises to Abraham. It is all about grace, a gift. It is all about mercy, not getting what you deserve. But it is also about justice, getting what you deserve. It's just that you have a substitute in Jesus who has received that on your behalf. See, being set free from God's just judgment hinges on one thing, your acceptance of the Lord Jesus as your Saviour and Lord. Whether you repent, which means turn your life around from moving away from God and move towards him, you put your trust in the Lord Jesus and you follow him. See, in Matthew 11, 20 to 24, Jesus says this about the towns that have rejected him. We're told Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? No. You will go down to Hades, for if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. Jesus is saying, here we are, you have me. You have the fullness of the gospel being provided to you. The good news that Jesus died on the cross for you and was raised again on the third day. It's a gift of God. Reach out and take it. You have that. And it will be unbearable on that day if you turn your back on him and you walk away. If you decide that it's not for you. There is no fence here. You are either with him or you are against him. He has done everything to recognise the justice of the just judgment and the mercy of his great love for you. The question is, when you stand before the Lord on your judgment day, when the royal commission into your life is unfolded, Will you be in Jesus, having put your trust in him and repented of your sin? Or will you continue to hold on to the idea that somehow you deserve to be saved? And for those of us who have done that, don't underestimate the gravity of your own sin. Because if you do, you'll never grasp hold of the gravity of God's love. 
When you recognise the reality of who we are, we are not inherently good. It's only then when you grasp hold of that can you respond with praise and worship and your life as a living sacrifice, as Paul puts it. Romans 12, I think. Don't underestimate those things. And if you're here today and you have not put your trust in the Lord Jesus, let me encourage you to do that. It is not hard to do that. He has done everything for you. But you need to surrender your life, acknowledge Jesus as your saviour, and put your trust in him and follow him as your Lord. Now, I hadn't planned on doing this today, but I, I, do, I do feel that we will pray a prayer now. And I want to give an opportunity to anyone who has not committed their life to the Lord to do that now. And I'm going to say a prayer. It's going to be as simple as this. It's going to say, Dear God, thank you that Jesus died on the cross for me and you raised him to life again so that I can be forgiven. I admit I have wronged you and need your forgiveness. Please forgive me. I commit to following Jesus as the saviour from my sin and the Lord of my life. Amen. I'm going to give you space to pray that in your heart. And if anyone does pray that today, I encourage you to come and see me afterwards because I want to, I want to walk with you on your new journey and your new life. Let's pray. Dear God, Thank you that Jesus died on the cross for me. Thank you you raised him to life again so I can be forgiven. I admit I have wronged you and need your forgiveness. Please forgive me. I commit to following Jesus as the saviour from my sin and the Lord of my life. Amen.